And with me in a is none other than Harold Ovinsky. He is the father of, of the bucket strategy. Harold, how are you this morning or this afternoon? Good, thank you. Oh, well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Got a lot of things I want to ask you, as you can imagine, including things beyond the bucket strategy. But before I do that, why don't you tell folks, you know, a little bit about yourself and your work as a, a financial planner? Well, so I sort of fell into it. Uh, long story short, I was a production home builder and the same things that led to uh, the development of a need for financial planning led me to decide I needed a new profession, ended up getting a job with, uh, at the time it was uh, Bates, now Prudential, sent me to New York for a month, came back, sat me down on the phone and said, okay, start calling people. First lady sounded like my grandmother hung up on me. I said, well, be a very short career. And uh, I happened to see an ad for something back then called the College of Financial Planning. Sounded interesting and started the program and got my CFP back then. It was not much of a meaningful designation. Um, started doing called yellow pad planning because it really was yellow pad planning at the time. Um, did educational seminars every night, like six nights a week, talking about the new tax act. It was always a new tax. Built my business that way. Um, the firm was good. Never pushed me to do anything I didn't want, but didn't understand what I was doing. Uh, manager would come in the morning with a money market list and say, hey, these people got money, call them up. I said, no, I know what they need. And you can't, they always, you know, they don't tell you everything. I said, yeah, that's that's what I do. Um, anyway, became a vice president of investments. Then I went to uh, Drexel Burnham Lambert, um, which was the Mike Milken area era and I uh, was there for a few years and again they never pushed me to do anything they didn't want to do but uh, finally just got frustrated because they didn't know what I was doing and started my financial planning practice on my living room table that was mm. 30 plus years ago um, built the practice in Miami um, it's an RIA a fee-only practice um, then probably about you know, six, seven years ago. Uh, my wife was also my partner. That's the Katz, uh, Vinsky and Katz. Okay. Um, so she moved to uh, Lubbock, Texas to uh, back back then, still today, uh, Texas Tech had a B3M in a personal financial planning program in the country teaching. And I shuttled back and forth for about four or five years and finally, I started teaching full-time, um, became a professor of practice, and did that for many years. I uh, started a small office here. Well, if I'm here, I may as well do some planning here, too. Um, and that got built up to a really substantial practice here. And about, about four years ago, retired from both um, our business and and the okay. Great. Since Great. then, I'm doing some consulting with the yeah. firm. And Sounds good. Um, a lot of experience. And, you know, we were just talking just briefly before we went live. Uh, I'm really going to want to tap your experience in working with people because there's theory, uh, and that's all fine and well, but then there's the reality of actually living and trying, trying to figure this out, you know, in the real world. So, Obviously, we want to talk about the bucket strategy, but I have sort of two preliminary questions that I think will help segue into the bucket strategy. Okay. The, and the first is, so let's imagine when you were in your practice, a client comes in and says, Harold, I just retired. I got a million bucks saved, maybe some social security now or at some point. Uh, how much can I spend each year without going broke? How, how, at least conceptually, how would you help a client figure that out? Well, that, that's the whole process of financial planning. Um, I refer to it as anchoring on the efficient frontier. There's this concept of uh, risk and reward, stock bond balance, how much risk you take, what reward. And so we go through planning process. The first is decide what do you need to maintain your standard of living. Um, you know, that's not a magic number like uh, 4%. It's, you know, some things are 
you need forever. Some things are fixed and terminable like a mortgage. So a lot of moving parts. And that's where the financial planning technology, uh, we use some software called Money Guide comes in. And that yeah. some idea of what, what do you need to accomplish your goals? The next is, can you live with it when the market like today goes? Uh, right. We call the risk tolerance. I define as right before you call me up and say, Harold, I can't stand to sell me out. Um, hopefully, we can come up with a plan and allocation that meets your needs below your risk tolerance. Uh, if not, then it's a question of saying, okay, you want to eat less well or sleep less well. And our recommendation is plan on eating less well because if you say, well, no, I'll take a little more risk, chances are when that risk rears its ugly head, you're not going to be able to handle it. You're going to bail out, right. and that's the worth of all work. So well, is, was there a point, though, like if someone came in and said, here are all my needs, and it came out to 70 grand a year, maybe adjusted for inflation, perhaps, and they've got a million dollars, I mean, that's 7%. I mean, do you, at what point would you start to pump the brakes and say, wait a minute, uh, you know, we may not have to live and die by the 4% rule, but at some point, you are going to have to cut back because you really can't support that level of spending on yeah, your million dollars. The 4%, it always annoyed me, they call it a rule. It's a it's a framing technique. It's to yeah. say, look, this is kind of reality. It may not be right for you because you've got a lot of moving parts, but 7% is not likely to be reality. Uh, we need to do some planning and figure out what reality is. But it helps begin the framing of their acceptance of what's possible. Okay. And then, so once you figure out that piece of the puzzle, what were you finding as sort of the, the if there is such a thing, the typical asset allocation for folks in retirement? And I'm really sort of focused on the st stocks versus bonds. I know you can drill down into different kinds of stocks and bonds, but, you know, were you a sort of a 60-40? Did a lot of your clients fall in there or somewhere else? No, we think, we well, we, I think the 60-40 is a good sort of benchmark to begin at. Okay. Um, but we have clients that have, ample resources and the fact of the matter is they can bury it in the backyard if they want to and in yeah. that case we say okay you know we need to start are you planning for yourself are you looking for heirs you want to leave something um maybe an 80 percent bond 20 percent stocks is appropriate we have some that it's they have a reasonable risk tolerance so you know maybe a 70 percent uh equity 30 percent for someone who's really young and, you know, maybe in their 30s, even 40s, um, doing long term, you really have no idea. So in that case, if they have reasonable risk tolerance, might start off with a 20% fixed, 80% equity. Okay. We go much beyond that because we want to be able to rebalance when markets are volatile like this. So yeah. somewhere between, you know, 70% bonds and 70% uh, stocks would be the range. Uh, okay. You know, many fall in that 40, 60, but that's the range. Okay. So that kind of then gets me to the bucket strategy. I think you sort of began using this in the 80s, if I, if I recall correctly. Correct. But um, describe for us how, your bucket strategy. I know there are other versions. We'll talk about it. But what's the Harold Avinsky bucket strategy? How does yeah. it work? It's a real, really simple. It's all based on called behavioral finance, behavioral economics, that people don't behave necessarily, quote, rationally like an economist would describe, but in many cases, emotionally. So in trying to figure out how can we manage the emotions in a really bad market um, in a way that makes sense to the investor and is simple to manage, I came up with called the two bucket strategy and the basic idea is how much you need on an annual basis to maintain your basic standard of living you know, pay your mortgage you know, buy your food not necessarily take a trip around the world um, less whatever outside income you may have pension social security whatever and so whatever that number is we would put in that we call it the uh, cash flow reserve bucket 
which would be money market or maybe a combination of money market and short-term bond fund. And that would sit there and the balance of the portfolio is the 40, 60, 30, 70, whatever it may be. Okay. And um, most part that would sit there and we would manage the investment portfolio. Um, if the market, if they, I'm sorry, if they were withdrawing from that and it was going down, um, then we would, as we rebalance, we'd say, okay, well, you know, we need to sell some stocks and buy some bonds, the market's up, let's fill it back up. So we would maintain that, but the point is, in a really bad market, they didn't have to tap into their investment portfolio. They could take their cash flow and they needed out of the cash flow portfolio. Gotcha. Uh, the idea was or is um, that in a really bad market, they don't panic. They know where their grocery money was coming from. I mean, the story I tell them, it's a real one, was back during the um, I don't know, early whatever, oh, uh, 87. It looked like no. the world was coming to an end. I mean, I was scared to death. Um, so the following Monday, um, I told, like I had two people working for me at the time, let's get on the phone and call everyone. The first lady I got sounded like my grandmother. So I don't know if you noticed, but the market was a little off, you know. <laughs> I swear, she said, we have what we call a five-year mantra, five years, five years, five years. Meaning, if you're going to need money in five years, don't invest it. It needs to be liquid. And she said, I know, five years, five years, five years. It was a non-event for her yeah, because she okay. knew where her grocery money was coming from. And yeah. that was the response we got from pretty much everyone. Nobody was happy, but no one was panicked. No one stood right. up. And we found the same experience during the tech bust, the Grand Recession. Um, from a behavioral standpoint, it helped people pretty much ignore what was going on. Understand. We have a basic underlying belief over time, domestic and world economy will go up and the markets will go up. Yeah. If they crash forever, who cares? You know? We got uh, bigger problems. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a real simple, people understand it. Managing it is very simple. Uh, okay. So, is, we almost never had, had to rebalance or fill it. So let me kind of drill down into some details. First of all, I think when you first started doing this, you started out with a two-year cash bucket, yeah. and then you later, of course, that's taking more money out of the investments, and, and you thought, well, we can get the behavioral advantages we want with just one year, and that'll keep more money invested. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a lot written about how finish it is. There's no question. There's an opportunity cost of keeping money in cash. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, I worked with two of my friends, two professors in the program, and we did a much more sophisticated analysis than I had done originally and concluded that one year was a reasonable set okay. aside. So the opportunity cost was a lot less. Is that analysis published anywhere? Uh, yeah, Journal of Financial Planning. Um, we published that article. Okay. I'll, I'll see if I can find that. Um, so, so in this cash bucket, is that what what your clients would actually use to pay for bills every month right out of this yes. whatever yeah we basically we set it up and almost every firm whether it's a fidelity a schwab or a merrill you can set up something to pay you a check out of your account every month yeah. yeah so we set it up so it's it's like a payroll check okay so okay you need so much it'll just automatically pay you every month and so um how often would you would you <clears throat> Would you fill it up once a year? I mean, like, would you let would you let it get all, all the way down to almost zero before you filled it up, or did you fill it up quarterly? Or no, we we rebalance generally on a quarterly basis. So on a quarterly basis, we'd start <laughs> to rebalance, look over at you know the cash bucket and say, oh, you know, it's down a little bit. Let's take this opportunity to fill it back up. Okay. So before you came up with this idea, I I'm going to assume that your clients had some amount of money in cash. You know, before there was the bucket strategy, but were they 
were they just not keeping a year's worth? Was the idea that they and they might have I don't know maybe they were only getting cash every three months or something? Well, no. In, in our typical portfolio, we had a cash allocation. Typically, it was around two percent. But the problem with that was when the market is down. Now they're looking at their long-term portfolio to have to liquidate something, and that's where, from a behavioral standpoint, yeah. It was very scary. We wanted to take the focus off of they're looking at we call the long-term portfolio. I see. So, so just having the just knowing that the cash is separate from the portfolio, it, it gave your clients the psychological benefit of of some level of security, and and they were better able to sort of ignore the portfolio at least to some extent, particularly when yeah, the markets were down. No one was happy. But that's exactly yeah. what it is. It's a behavioral framing. We okay. move the focus off of the portfolio so that they know if the market is down, they don't have to worry about what's going on with it. They can, to a certain extent, ignore what's going on. Well, you know, in some ways, so I interviewed uh, Bill Bingen just two days ago. He's the father of the 4% rule. Um, and in and, and, and his testing, he kind of, he doesn't call it a bucket strategy, but that's kind of what he did because he would pull out a year's worth of, of expenses. You know, he did it on an annual basis. You've, you've said you, you typically did it quarterly. Um, and, uh, but he, you know, in his, his modeling, he would pull out, you know, the money once a year um, and then kind of test from there. Uh, so it's kind of, I suppose, kind of what he did. But as you know, f folks have taken your idea and said, okay, well, if two buckets is good, three buckets has to be better. And this was actually, my, the three bucket approach was actually my first introduction to the bucket strategy. Um, what do you think of, and normally it's what? It's one bucket for cash, a second bucket maybe for fixed income, five to seven years of expenses maybe. And then I guess a third bucket with, I don't know, stocks, REITs, that kind of thing. Um, did you ever implement a three bucket strategy for your clients? What do you think about that approach? Um, no. My whole approach is based on simplicity and something the clients can understand that's cost efficient and easy to manage. Um, the three bucket is certainly a behavioral tool that appeals to the way people think, but I find it more complex, more expensive, and not nearly as uh, effective. Yeah. Well, it, I think one of the the rationales to the three bucket approach is that you can spin down buckets one and two in down markets without touching your stocks. But it seems to me, and this is why eventually I, I abandoned it, in a down market, again, this year is an exception because everything's down. That doesn't happen very often. But in a normal market, when stocks are down, maybe bonds are up yeah, you don't want, you don't want to sell stocks. That's true. But you want to buy them. It's actually what you want to do. Exactly. And so it just seemed to me that simply rebalancing whatever once a year would accomplish, you know, would keep you from selling your losers. You, you basically, you sell your winners and buy your losers. Yeah, obviously I agree with you. The fact of the matter is having done this since roughly the mid eighties, we've never had an occasion in which, the one year didn't work. Uh, but we always had, or I explained to clients, we had what I call our second tier. Meaning if we had, if they had spent through the one or the two year of reserves, we would dip into the investment portfolio and the bond portion. We always laddered the bonds. So we had something okay. short term. Short, so we'd say, okay, we'll sell some of your short term bonds not likely to be a loss or very modest loss. We might throw your allocation out of balance instead of a 40-60. Maybe it would be a 37-63 you know, or something. Yeah. But now we're presumably a couple of years through an economic cycle. Again, that was our fail-safe. Never had to do it. Okay. Let's talk about the bond laddering. Um, because that's interesting to me. I tend to just take a, for the most part, a total U.S. bond market approach, which is, uh, you know, intermediate term duration of like six or seven years. 
I have some tips as well, which are a somewhat recent, you know, I guess last 25 years, I guess maybe not, maybe not that recent, but uh, tell us about your, your bond laddering approach. How many different rungs were there on the ladder and how did you implement it? Um, if we had someone with a very large portfolio, we might do a 10-year ladder, you know, 10%, one through 10 years. But oh. typically, um, really just three positions utilizing funds, a short term with a duration of uh, you know, like one to three, what I call short intermediate three to five, intermediate five to 10. And typically, they would be equal. But depending on, you know, where the yield curve is at the time, we might overweight one versus the other a little bit. But again... Mm -hmm very simple approach, something clients could understand um, and we can easily rebalance. You, on this, on the simpler approach, you know, where you've got three different durations in my mind, I can, you know, I can see how you could easily implement that with ETFs or mutual funds. Yeah, we did. But if you're, if you're going to do a ladder one to 10, I know there are things like, I don't know if you're familiar with bullet shares. I don't know though that they have they actually have one to 10. Like, how would you build a one to 10 bond ladder? What kind okay. of investments yeah, the, do you The clients we had were typically in a relatively high tax bracket, so they were all municipals. Oh. And so they would be at, at a minimum $10,000 units. But again, um, that's pretty inefficient. So it would have to generally be $100,000 units in order to do it at cost efficient. So again, had to be a really large portfolio. Yeah. Were, were you buying individual bonds for, for these clients? And those those clients, uh, we would buy individual bonds. Okay, all right. And I'm curious, like today, now you said you retired a few years ago, but given interest rates and inflation, you saw I don't know if you saw the inflation numbers um, that just came out this morning. I think inflation is now at 400 percent or something like that. Maybe it's 9.1, but it's pretty bad. Uh, how would you? How would would that affect your your approach to bond ladders if you were practicing today and helping out a, a new newly retired in, uh, individual? Yeah, it would. There's two different time frames that um, that we I look at, and one is designing the investment portfolio, and the other one is the long term planning portfolio. Two different time frames, in designing the investment portfolio, and that's where the you know bond ladder comes in. Uh, certainly where rates and inflation today become a significant factor. Um, so, yeah, today I would uh, be overweighting the, the short, short intermediate uh, branch. Of the You'd line. be overweighting short, oh, so the lower end of the, your, the yield curve. Right. The lower end of the, the interest rate exposure. Yeah. Um, did tips ever become, did you ever use tips for clients yeah, as part of the a lot. I think tips are phenomenal. The, the problem okay. is the tax inefficiency of tips. Uh, so we would typically use tips and sheltered accounts. IRS, right. right. Case, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I think tips are, um, you know, tips are an insurance policy. There's a long time we use tips and, oh, well, you know, they don't pay much. There's not much there. But, yeah, but one of these days. I would always say inflation is going to rear its ugly head. I didn't antis anticipate this sooner this much. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tips are a good inflate, a good insurance policy against inflation. Well, since we've talked a bit about the bond side, like for, for a typical equity side of your allocation, uh, how would you how would you allocate that part of a client's portfolio? Um, certainly, start off with the core U.S. domestic S and P five hundred. Uh, because I have a value bias, we would somewhat overweight the value exposure. Uh, if we have more, then we would certainly add small caps in the exposure, uh, and almost always in uh, a global, uh, not a global, an international exposure. You know, then as it got larger than that, you know, maybe small cap international, uh, international value, would start depending on the size of the portfolio would start adding incrementally more elements to the portfolio. Okay. Would you ever add alternatives, precious metals? Um, uh, the answer is no and no. Um, alternatives, that sounds like a great story, but, you know, alternatives doesn't mean much of anything. I mean, that 
huge spectrum of different investments. Um, 90 plus percent of those I consider what I, I call a story sale. Um, you know, it's a good story. Uh, yeah. People, investors don't understand it. And uh, it's a good story for brokers to sell something. Uh, precious metals, uh, no. Um, they sort of, I take that back. I mean, something like, you know, silver, copper, things that, that might be used in industry. But you talk about gold, the answer is no. Um, certainly have used uh, REITs. Well, that's problematical because they're all over the place. Uh, and natural resources, uh, consider those legitimate potential. Uh, yeah. Investment. You and I think a lot alike, Harold. I don't know if that makes you nervous or not. Probably not. But no, no, we, based on what I've seen in the past, it's very positive. Yeah, I think I think we'd get along just just fine. Um, yeah, I think you know my take on REITs, for what it's worth, is that you know when you look at it historically, they they do roughly similar to stocks, but there is some. It seems to me some diversification. Uh, you know, they, they they tend to perform a little differently than just say an S and P five hundred on a say year to year basis. Uh, and so they've always, almost always been a part of my portfolio, but um, yeah, I've avoided the alternatives for a lot of reasons. They're, they're, they're expensive, they can be for one thing, the fees can get crazy. Uh, I was looking at one fund just yesterday, it was a 3% expense ratio. And I'm like, I can't, I can't afford that, you know? I, Nobody can. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so a couple other questions that come to mind, then I'll maybe look and see if any any questions have come up in the chat. Um, and I see a couple already. Um, uh, did you ever have a place for annuities, single premium, immediate annuities, or deferred annuities okay. as part of your planning? Annuities, um, variable annuities for a long time, I was very negative about because the costs were just simply too high. Um, there's now a universe of very low cost variables that I think may may play a role in, in a client portfolio um, with good advice and you know good guidance. Uh, single premium me immediate and what are called uh, long-term deferred immediates where you buy something at 60 and pays at 80, I think are both extremely powerful potential tools. I have not used them because annuity immediate annuity payments very dependent on current interest rates, roughly 10 yeah. years treasury. And with rates as low as they've been, I've always felt delaying made sense. Uh, the risk of delaying is uh, mortality uh, goes way up, so they get more expensive, which didn't seem like a big risk. And every year you wait, you're getting more, um, more return, mortality return. Yeah. I don't think they make much sense until someone is in probably their late 60s or 70s because any traditional investment has dividends, uh, income, or capital gains. Annuity is the only thing that has a fourth potential return, that mortality return. Uh, you know, you buy it, someone dies, leaves money on the table, and you get part of it. Um, that starts kicking in, say, late 60s, 70s. Uh, yeah, and so there's been quite a bit of research, and I think it makes a lot of sense to consider it as part of a portfolio for someone who's old. All right, just just so folks listening follow this, and so make sure I follow it. When you talk about mortality return, you know, when you buy an annuity, the insurance company decides when you're going to die, <laughs> right? They say, okay, you're going to die when you're 86 or whatever. And so the idea of the mortality return is that, aha, I've tricked the insurance company. I really live to be 98, and I keep collecting all those extra fact, payments. Right. Is that the, the idea? The protection, the risk is you buy it, you die a day later. Yeah. So you think about it, if you're dead, you really don't care. But to the extent behaviorally or your heirs, um, you can get what's called a 10-year guarantee, which yeah. means if you die the next day, It'll continue paying for 10 years. Uh, the differential between one with and without that, the monthly payment is fairly small. Um, there is certainly a cost. If you die the next day, the 10-year payment, discounting it back for inflation, is not going to be equal to what you put into it. But it's not going to be a huge difference. So you put 100000 in, the discounted value yeah. would be maybe 90000 
Uh, but that should take most of that discomfort with an immediate yeah. out of the equation. Do you know, do, do, do insurance companies look at the 10-year yield when they're pricing annuities? Or do I'm you know sorry, if they look, look at, at what yield? Do they look at the ten, the tens, the 10-year yeah, yield? It's a very rough guideline. They're related to a 10-year treasury yield. Okay. And are you, you know, what at what yield for the 10-year? We're around somewhere around 3%. Uh, but at what yield uh, on the 10-year would you start to get more interested in annuities? I, I really haven't looked at in a while. I would say we're probably getting there. Um, it would come down to looking at how it fits in in terms of this um, you know, financial planning analysis if you buy it. Uh, it may be marginally inefficient today, but if it, if it really helps increase the probability of of your long-term success, no matter how long you live, then we'd probably start considering it. Yeah. Well, one of the challenges, at least it seemed to me, is that, you know, I've heard some suggest, you know, figure out your absolute bare minimum expense, you know, what you just need to just survive and buy an annuity to cover that. And then, and then you've got other investments, assuming you didn't spend them all to buy the annuity for that extra. But as you know, annuities don't, they don't sell annuities today that um, adjust by the rate of inflation. And even even when they did, they probably weren't all that great in terms of yeah, pricing. They were real expensive. Right. So like if you have, I don't know, if let's say your monthly, uh, you know, you need at least $3,000 a month just to survive. You know, you go to buy the annuity, you got to factor in inflation. So how do you figure out what the monthly benefit should be? And I guess that's just all part of financial planning. Maybe there's no easy answer to it. But how did you... How do you think through those issues? Yeah, one, I would, I, I would never use that strategy. Okay. I think the planning needs to be holistic. And as part of that planning, uh, you've got built in, presumably, the inflation of each of the components of, of your different goals. Now, inflation for healthcare is likely to be a whole lot higher than inflation for food. Inflation yeah. for you know, your cars or something is likely to be somewhere a little bit higher. So it, it all comes together um, in terms of the planning analysis. Okay. That's why, you know, seat of the pants or the sort of software that retail investors can get on the web are not going to do the job. Yeah, I tell you, it is a little bit, dis it's frustrating that as a consumer, we can't get our hands on Money Guide Pro or eMoney Advisor. Now, you, you can through an advisor. Uh, uh, there are other software. They, 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 there's some software coming along that's pretty good, but yeah, I, I just you know I, I wish there wasn't a, a lock on that market. But yeah, I, a number of years ago, um, a group of graduate students, now professors, and I uh, did a study on we call the efficacy of personal financial planning software, and we looked at I don't remember today maybe 20 or 25 of the major software programs available to the public, you know, the Fidelities, the Merrills, the, you name it. And our assumption going in was they probably weren't very good, but they would be good educational tools. Hmm. Our conclusion is they were very bad. I wow. Mean, I, simple things like most of them didn't ask if you were a smoker or not. Well, that makes a fairly big difference in mortality assumptions. Yeah. Uh, or they would take your expenses, including mortgage, and inflate them all. Well, mortgages don't inflate. I mean, so across the board, we thought they were all extremely wanting. Interesting. And, 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 time. That was quite a few years ago. Okay. Is that is that published as well, that work? Yeah, that was That's also published. I, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link to the... To oh, that'd be great. Well, for those listening, I will add the link below the video when we're when 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 Harold sends it over. Let me just uh, okay, let me just go through a couple of questions. So, Brian, you mentioned a sixty forty mix, and he wanted to know: is the sixty percent stocks or bonds? Sixty percent stock. Okay, just to confirm that. By the way, you know, going back to the annuities for a second, I take it if you had a client that came in with far more money than they ever needed during retirement. I, would, would an annuity ever make sense if they've got far more than they ever need? Uh, yeah, uh, probably the best example. Remember, I'm a financial planner, not, yeah. not a money manager. 
Okay. Uh, my favorite story is an elderly doctor came in to see me, and um, he was in his 80s, but still working maybe six hours a week. And I did a plan, and he came back in. I said, okay, doctor, sit down. I said, I've done this plan, and I think it's going to cost you about $40,000 a year to keep working because you're insurance and everything else and you're not making anything and he just like practically collapsed he was so upset and i said wait i haven't finished my recommendation is you keep working I said how oh, that makes no sense you told me it's going to cost me 40 50 000, whatever it was i said i know it will except you've got more money than you're going to ever spend it's going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars in psychiatric treatment if you don't keep working so the point is, yes, it may make sense, not from an economic standpoint, but if the client has enough and it gives them and they absolutely don't worry about what's going on in the financial world, it may make sense or certainly okay. a portion of it, yeah. Okay. Uh, one person asked about specific investments. I mean, for your for your international and U.S. and small cap, uh, you, know, you also mentioned you, you, you would – you would tilt a little bit towards value. Um, were you basically in, uh, investing client money in index funds or were you using actively managed funds? Good. The answer to the second is good, Lord, no. ETFs primarily okay. are mutual funds when they weren't available. Yeah. You know, a I lot mean, of people, go ahead. Active invest is, you know, hope springs eternal, but there's so much massive amount of research and data that it just it doesn't pay yeah uh a lot of folks in retirement have this view that they need to favor investments with high yields uh so it could be reits for example not that there's anything wrong with reits but what they're really after is the the, the increased yield um what's your view on i guess i'll call it dividend investing yeah. versus maybe a total return approach um it's again, it's a good story, makes absolutely no sense. All you care about is what you get back, dividends, interest, and or capital gains or losses, total return. Yeah. Um, I tell people, I give you 20% a year guarantee, absolutely no risk for five years. At the end of five years, there's nothing left, but you've got 20%. Yeah, it, it, it's a good story that makes absolutely no sense. Um, I do a, a newsletter just of different things I read or come across that look interesting. And I'd say in almost every one, I have a couple of examples of pitches for uh, income portfolios or dividend portfolios. And I'll simply run a comparison of that to an ETF that plays in the same sandbox and there's no comparison. Yeah. ETF yeah. wins hands down. So, yeah. you know, sell what you need and keep the difference. So if when you're tilting, I call it tilting, but you know, if you're going to add small cap or small cap value, or you said you might tilt even your large cap towards value, uh, but let's just use small cap as an example. What percentage of the portfolio would you tend to put in small cap? Like how, how what, to what degree would you, would you move the portfolio in these directions away from just say the basic total market or yeah, S&P 500? That changes not all the time, maybe every few years, depending on what relative uh, values are. But small cap, uh, small cap itself, domestic may anywhere from ten to thirty percent of a portfolio. Oh, wow! So now, would that be ten to thirty percent of the equity portion of the portfolio? Of, of the large cap equity. Of oh, just the large cap equity. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a again a lot of research suggesting there's a small cap factor, meaning you get yeah. X return for the extra risk. Uh, yeah. But it's more risky, so that's sort of balancing those two things. So, in, in terms of the total portfolio, the whole the total stock bond portfolio, say for a sixty forty portfolio, your small cap may be somewhere in the five to ten percent range of the of the of the overall portfolio. Yeah, I'm I'm top of my head. I don't remember anymore, but that sounds yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, do you do you believe that you know you mentioned small cap is sort of this it, it, you know the history of, of it being a, a factor? Do you favor small cap value specifically or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking for those two factor returns. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
Okay, yeah, so far you and I, I uh, people are going to think I stole all my ideas from you. That's what concerns me about this conversation. I don't think so. We haven't talked before. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. It, it happens to be true. Um, I'm just looking at some other questions here real quick. I think Brian had a question. Yeah, so your your allocation in your bucket strategy, your asset allocation is just in bucket two. Bucket one is totally separate. I mean, bucket one is totally separate. Correct. Yeah. Uh, one person had a question. How does, if someone has a pension, I suppose, if someone has a pension, I guess that would be relevant in, in, in considering whether they should also add an annuity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I imagine there could be situations where it might make sense to have both. The answer is yes. Yeah. Is your firm, I know you retired, but is your is, is Avinsky and Katz still operating? Oh, yeah. Miami, I think, is close to 30 professionals in Lubbock, maybe five or six. And there's a couple of billion dollars. So, yes, very, okay. very much so. All right. Um, well, you know, I appreciate your time today. I, you know, I'm trying to think of other questions, but you've, boy, you've covered just about everything. Anything else we should have covered that, that I missed? Not that I can think of. I enjoyed it. Appreciate being invited. I will send you a link to those articles. Also, a small book I did uh, called Hello Herald that's free electronically on Amazon. That okay. Pieces of what we talked about. Yeah, that would be great. If you send me links to that, I will add them below this video um, uh, when I get them, and that'd be wonderful. Well, sir, thank you so much. Uh, you know, it's funny, my, my, my understanding of and view of the bucket strategy has just changed over time. To me, your two bucket strategy makes a ton of sense. Uh, I mean, some folks may not need it, right? Some folks might say, I'm very comfortable with just three months of cash. That's fine. But if, yeah, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Even I could never wrap my mind around the three bucket strategy, but I, I can, I, yeah. So, okay, sir. Well, thank you so much, Harold. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed it and appreciate being invited. Take care. Take care. All right, gang. Well, there's Harold Avinsky. I kind of feel like my, my, my work on the bucket strategy is now done. <laughs> if you go back to older videos in this channel, my very first bucket strategy was, I think, video was positive. That's what I planned to do. And then I started to to think it through and run into problems. I had a video, I think it was something like the bucket strategy and the 4% rule, because you need to have the right asset allocation if you want to follow something akin to the 4% rule. Uh, and then finally, I just gave up on the, again, this was the three bucket strategy. I think um, uh, the, the, the approach that Harold describes, frankly, my hunch is in one way or another, every, almost every retiree is going to follow it Maybe not the way he describes it, but for example, even in my case where I might be comfortable just taking money out every three months, uh, I'm still, I'm still, I guess, even in my case, I'm always going to have three months worth of expenses in the bank. So I'm, I'm going to start with three months, then take out another three months and spend it. So I'll probably never go down below three months. That's my safety level. But then I almost always have some other cash, either because I'm setting aside just an emergency fund. Or now, you know, we're setting aside money for some work on the house. So I don't know. I don't know if it comes out to a year, but uh, you know, it, it's probably close. And um, again, it may not always be exactly a year or whatever. But you know, I think that kind of makes sense. I guess one question: It's interesting that he doesn't include it in the in the fixed income allocation. And I probably wouldn't either under a year. I think if if I if I needed two years of cash, let's say, to feel comfortable, I would probably include the one one year of it as part of my fixed income. Uh, but you know, if you're spending every quarter or even up to a year, I'm not sure that I would. Probably probably doesn't matter much one way or another. Uh, but there you go. Um, I think I've covered all the questions. Um, I see one from Benny. Uh, let me see if I can show you on the screen real quick. Let me uh, make a quick change and I'll cover this if I can. Let's see here. He says, if my tax if his 401k is relatively small, what is the most efficient thing to have inside this account? 
Well, yeah. So tips, yeah, certainly I'll give you my view on it. Of course, I, uh, Harold, I don't know what Harold would say, but in traditional 401ks, I, that's usually where I put bonds. Um, and I'm okay putting stocks there too. If I have a Roth, I want to put stocks because as I've said, I want my Roth accounts to get as fat as a tick. Um, and then in, in taxable accounts, uh, munis, if you're going to have bonds, I think municipal bonds because of the tax advantages. You know, I have some cash like in a savings account or whatever uh, that I'm going to spend uh, soon. Uh, and so it earns, you know, it doesn't earn much, but actually it earns more than it did, you know, a few weeks ago. So I guess that's good. You know, I cover interest rates, as you know, and man, they're changing fast. I mean, we're, we're updating the database almost daily with new rates. Um, as I mentioned, the best one I found right now is the 14-month no penalty CD from Sally May. If you go to their website, you can't find it. It's only available through uh, a company called Save Better. It's 2.2%. I'll put a link below to that below the video. But in any event, um, Benny, I hope that helps. Uh, VJ, hey man, how are you? Good, to, glad you could join. You need to do a revised bucket strategy. Yeah, I probably should. I'll put that in. The, I'll put that on. I've got a long list. I'll add it to my list. Um, all right, let's do a couple more. Retired five plus years of money needs in a TIA traditional at four point two five percent, three percent guaranteed. All else total U.S. Why not use years needs rather than our, well, so I, I get, I think, so the, if I understand the question, it's, you know, when you think about basic asset allocation, it's usually based on percentages, like the 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. When it comes to cash, though, that you're going to spend, it, it does make sense to think of it in years, and I agree with the commenter, if, I think that's the point. Um, I, I think... Yeah, I would take it out based on how much I'm going to spend, let's say, over the next year, for example. But in terms of overall asset allocation, I do think for me, it's better to think of it in percentages. Because um, if, you, if you do it just on years of expenses, which is effectively what the three budget or the three bucket strategy does, uh, then you could end up with an asset allocation that's inconsistent with an overall plan that you're trying to achieve. So for example, if you're gonna use something like the 4% rule, um, this, this, the data, notwithstanding what Bill Bingen actually does, if you watch the video from, from two days ago, you know he's 95% cash. Oh, um, you need roughly 50 to 75% in equities. Now he, he's kind of narrowed that down to between 50 and 60, but again, depending on your situation, it could be a lot different, a point that Harold made today. I just personally find percentages make the most sense. If you did try to allocate everything based on years of expenses, and this is kind of goes back to the video I did, I don't know, a year ago, where I 4% rule in the bucket strategy, it was like, I still think you need to look at your overall asset allocation from a percentage uh, perspective to make sure you're somewhere within that range that historically the data shows, you know, you can achieve, a, you know, a success following some sort of inflation adjusted withdrawal strategy, such as what Bill Bingen uses in his research on the 4% rule. Uh, I hope that makes sense. You've probably just eaten lunch. You're probably groggy, a little tired. Maybe that didn't make any, maybe I didn't even say it right. I think I did. All right. Hybrid anomaly. So this is not any kind of anomaly. This is a hybrid anomaly. Would you suggest a 16-year-old who has a Roth IRA? Let me just stop there. Kudos to any 16-year-old that has a Roth IRA. You're already winning. Okay. Have buckets so they have that knowledge at an early age or just wait until they get older. So personally, I would not think about it. The bucket strategy is, in my mind, is designed for when you start to spend your money. And if you follow the Harold Avinsky bucket strategy, it's not complicated. And that was his point. It's simple. You just take a year's worth of spending and put it in cash. And then... You can fill that bucket up quarterly as you rebalance your portfolio, or you could fill it up every six months. I mean, it's very flexible. So I personally um, would not think about the bucket strategy, not just if I were 16 and had a Roth IRA, but I wish I had a Roth IRA at 16. I'm so old. They didn't have Roth IRAs when I was 16. That's a whole other story. I wouldn't have had one if they, if they did. I wouldn't think of the bucket strategy even while you're accumulating, personally. 
No, I'm not, Steve. This is just this is just an iPad Pro. Is it a Pro? Is that what they call it? The big one? And I'm using, um, I'll even show it to you. I don't know how well you can see that. Probably not at all. It's all shiny now. But um, I'm using a um, note plan, which is an app that I love. I mentioned it the other day. I've used about every note-taking app out there. This one I really like. Of course, there have been other times when I've really liked a different one. Um, but I really do like this one. And I normally have it on this keyboard. But I didn't do that because I didn't want it to be too much in the way. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I got to tell you, uh, you're the 16-year-old, right? So if I were investing today as a 16-year-old, I'd probably just, for now, depends how much I had, um, start with an S&P 500. I might branch out to that as I accumulated more money, but, you know, and and you should hope for a bear market, assuming this is long-term invest. Hope the stocks keep going down. <laughs> you see, we had inflation at 9.1%, stock market tanked, but it looks like it's kind of mellowed out. It's kind of flat. Oh, my bank stocks are down. I have to look and see if I have some tax loss harvesting opportunities. By the way, I'm going to do another video on Betterment, but I'll see if I can quickly log into my account just to see if I have any tax losses. I mean, I don't know how often, I'll figure this out and I'll let you know. Um, I don't know how often, I've got to do my two-factor authentication. I sure hope you use that on your financial accounts. Um, I don't know how often they actually trigger, you know, is it is it based on the amount of the tax loss? I need to figure that out. Um, but uh, I've earned a total of a, a negative $179.54. Yeah, no, no tax losses have been har harvested yet. Um, <laughs> Noreen, uh, this is the last comment, so I'm going to end the show on, on, on Noreen's comment. I'm glad you were able to lurk. But I am still waiting to hear from you about being a moderator, right? I think that's what you mentioned. I need one. Although this show, I think, went pretty smoothly. All right, gang. Well, there you go. By the way, I've got Michael Kitsis coming up. I've, I've already, you'll see it on the channel. I think it's in August. And I'm going to reach out to some other folks. I've got several in mind because um, these are a lot of fun. I learn a lot. Hopefully you do too. And, um, you know, I you get different perspectives. I mean, it's funny. I mean, it, Harold thinks, I think, a lot like I do. So I don't know if that was helpful or not, but it was good to hear how he thinks through the bucket strategy. And it was interesting, his take on the three bucket strategy. So there you go. Well, listen, hope you have a, a great uh, rest of your week and a great weekend. Remember, there's no live show on Monday, but I will be back following Monday. You know, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. And uh, I should have a couple other videos out maybe during that time as well. And uh, so there you go. So have a great week. Until next time, remember, the best thing money can buy is financial freedom.